Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Bill, we usually have a little banter about the weather, so I'm pleased to say that it's like really warm outside. I have spring fever to the max. Yeah, it's very nice. You're sitting here in your t-shirt. Yeah, because I was you, hot. You, yeah, you yeah. shed your flannel yes, from earlier I, today. I had my flannel. It's, it's, it's like, casual it's Friday, like seven, so I, I take that to its full limits. It's 75 and humid yeah. outside. You were outside uh, helping to paint the jet. I was not painting it. Or, I was or, actually buffing out the leading edge of the Tomcat that's here on static display. Um, so if you visit the Naval Academy or if you haven't been here since last summer, um, there is now an F-14 in our air park that consists of four airplanes. Yeah, out here on Hospital Point, on if Hospital you drive Point. in Gate 8, you'll you'll see it yep. with, with the A-4 and the F, F-4 and the EA-6B. Yep. yep. So now there's an F-14A out there, and it's painted in the VF-124 colors, which are coincidentally – um, the era when the superintendent, Admiral Carter, who's also a Tomcat Rio, was stationed uh, at the West Coast Replacement Air Group, the RAG, the FRS, Fleet Replacement Squadron, where yep, you yep. train Tomcat pilots. And so um, the um, it's getting painted, and it looks really great. And so we're you know buffing it out and going to put a uh, clear coat on it, and it's going to be super nice. And, and yeah. so, and you have some hours in that actual airplane. No, I don't. Oh, okay. Uh, I thought you did. I, but Ted does. Okay. Uh, Admiral, Admiral, Carter, Admiral does. Carter does. He's got about 100 hours in that airplane. Yep. And Nasty Manazer. Admiral Manazer is, is the pilot Yeah, he's the on pilot. The side. Yep. Bill Sizemore is on the other cockpit. He's class of 80. He was in the RAG with me. Um, we went through together um, back in 1983 and 84. Um, and then uh, the last guy is Scott Stewart, who's the other Rio, who's on the uh, rear cockpit of the other side of the airplane. So four guys have their names on the rail, all uh, distinguished Tomcat uh, guys as well as Academy grads. All of them had commanded fighter squadrons, F-14 squadrons. So that's uh, appropriate that their names would be nice on the rail there. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was uh, in the squadron that supported Top Gun. The airplane itself was not in Top Gun, but it was in VF-51 when they filmed for Top Gun. Gotcha. So, yeah, it went all around. It wound up uh, as a VF-101 airplane, the East Coast F-14 RAG. Um, and then it was up at Quonset Point at the museum up there um, until last summer it was brought back down here by Commander Mark Millay, call sign fun, who's been heading the project to get it not only in place, because it's notable that it came with engines, ejection seats, all of the hardware in the in the cockpit. That's not normally what a static display airplane. Usually they're gutted. Right. None of the other airplanes in our air park have the engines in them. Yep. This one still has the engines. The ejection wow. seats have been taken out and put in our museum um, attic for distribution. Maybe we can put it in our conference center one set. <laughs> I asked Pete if he wanted one in his office, and he, he wasn't too interested in that. <laughs> Pete Daly, our, our CEO. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so it's kind of fun on a gorgeous day to go over there and uh, and and you know, I mean, it feels it's a spiritual yeah. uh, journey for me, having spent so many hours. You know, I may mean, have twenty eight hundred hours in the F fourteen, um, and so that's kind of cool to walk around on the top and just like when we used to when we pre flight the airplane and and so forth. So it's it's a lot of fun, especially on a beautiful day. Yes, very exactly. nice, very so, nice. Um, so, and some other things going on. Yeah, so the budget of, came out this week. Yeah, and the, was, pres the president's budget is out. So the DOD request is, you know, 700 and something billion dollars. It's, uh, it's gigantic. Uh, there were a few surprises in it, including the amount of OCO or overseas contingency operations, uh, money that's in it. Uh, and also, um, a couple of surprises. And all of this has been really covered well 
by our USNI news team this week. Ben Werner and Megan Eckstein and uh, Sam Legrone have all written stories about, you know, interesting tidbits that are in the president's budget or the DOD budget as part of the, uh, you know, the going in ask for 2020 for, um, for DOD. Uh, one of those big surprises was the, uh, the news that the Navy was uh, planning to uh, early retire the USS Harry S. Truman. Uh, so instead of doing the comprehensive reactor overhaul uh, in like 2023, I think is when it's scheduled at the, at the midlife point. So aircraft carriers are expected now to last about 50 years at least. Uh, every 25 years, they go in for a comprehensive reactor overhaul. They get, uh, you know, refueled and they also get updated in a lot of other systems. It's, it's in the, on the order of five to six billion dollars. So it's not a trivial amount of money. Uh, but in the, the 2020 DOD budget, instead of planning to, you know, uh, overhaul that carrier, which is still one of the, one of the newest, uh, Nimitz class carriers, the Navy cut that money out of the budget. Uh, and that was uh, has now been discussed a lot about uh, you know instead of uh, overhauling Truman that that goes towards the two carrier buy of the Ford class so the next two of the Ford class uh, so there's a lot of uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth about that you know people thinking that it's um, uh, penny wise and pound foolish in fact we published a proceedings today article with that title yesterday by Colonel Mark Kansian longtime proceedings uh, author. Uh, saying that that decision is penny wise and pound foolish. We know uh, acting Secretary of Defense uh, Shanahan was on the Hill yesterday uh, defending that decision and laying out the business case behind that decision. Uh, so, you know, and then the CNO, uh, uh, Admiral Daly and I were at a uh, Olmstead Foundation uh, event uh, in Washington, D.C. at the National Press Club on Tuesday night, and the CNO spoke. He was asked about that uh, that decision, and, and he, um, I, I wouldn't say that his defense of it was particularly strong. He, it, it, it sounded to me like it was sort of a, a going-in position. As we know, you know, this is a Republican budget request, uh, on at least on the House side. The Democrats now control the purse strings of spending. Uh, and so this almost sounded like, uh, you know, this was a, a going in position, expect, maybe expecting, uh, that the Virginia congressional delegation would put the money back in for the Truman. So I think a lot remains to be seen where this goes, uh, as the, um, you know, the back and forth, uh, the, um, the, you know, the budget hashing and, 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 uh, haggling goes on between the White House and, uh, and Congress over the next month or so before we have a real approved final budget. So it'd be interesting to see, but, but that's certainly gotten a lot of, uh, news, both on the USNI news side and then, you know, a couple of pieces in, uh, uh, proceedings or proceedings today about it. Yeah. I, I second your, uh, uh, call out for the USNI news team. The day the budget came out, they had three definitive articles that sliced and diced it in a digestible way. Um, so if you want to read the whole budget and try to figure it out yourself, then you have more free time than than most working people do. Yeah. Um, so let us do the hard work. And it's seriously, that's the, the that's them at their best. Uh, absolutely. And, and so they did a fantastic job. Yep, yep. Um, so Salvador Carrillo is uh, checking in from Mexico. He says, saludos a U.S. Naval. Um, so, uh, Buenos Dias, Salvador. Thanks for checking us out on Facebook Live. Very nice. Good stuff. Very nice. Hey, I also wanted to uh, point out before we get to our guest today, 
just a mention of the new website. So the USNI.org website, our, our homepage for proceedings, naval history, conferences, the, you know, the institute writ large, the press, books, etc., etc. Uh, so at the end of February, we rolled out the new website, uh, long awaited. It looks great. Feedback has been very positive. Uh, of course, we are constantly tweaking and figuring out, you know, some things that need to be uh, updated and, you know, that sort of thing, which is standard with any, any new website rollout, but it's a, a huge improvement uh, in, in timeliness and in, in sort of the responsiveness. It is responsive design, so it looks as good on your phone as it does on your tablet, as it does on your desktop. Uh, so we're very excited about it, and it seems like so far our members and our readers are excited. If you are a member and you haven't gone to the new website yet, when you go there, you will be prompted to log in and you'll have to change your login uh, password. So that's a security requirement. Um, as, uh, as many people probably know, uh, there's lots of uh, nefarious actors out there in uh, cyberspace. And our site is one that a lot of foreign governments think is associated and affiliated with the U.S. government. It's not, but... There's the perception that U.S. Naval Institute is part of the U.S. government. So people are trying to hack us and penetrate us all the time. Uh, so, you know, just uh, put up with the inconvenience of having to change your login and your password. Uh, I think as soon as you do and you see what's on the new website, you'll be extremely happy that you spent the minute or minute and a half to do that. So Yeah, so you don't have to change your your username, you not your username, your just your password. And right. It's super easy. It's it is. not a hassle. No. Um, people are used to this. And you'll find the user experience for everything from the podcast archives to the archives themselves is way improved. Yeah. Um, so as you already said, congratulations yeah. to our tech team for what was literally years of work to get us uh, to this point. And we're excited to keep keep on going in the digital space. Because uh, we hear this thing called the internet is catching on. Um, so we're going to go ahead and, and own that space. Hello <laughs> to Leonardo from Brazil. Um, we're, we're getting people checking in from all over the world here on Facebook Live. Awesome. So, Bill, why don't you go ahead and introduce our, our guest? Yeah, our guest today is Magnus Nordenman. He has written an article in the March issue of Proceedings. It starts on page 32. Magnus is uh, an expert on... Uh, uh, NATO and uh, European security and NATO in the maritime defense and uh, defense and deterrence in Northern Europe. Uh, for a long time, he worked at the Atlantic Council, uh, and he is the author of a forthcoming Naval Institute press book that is titled The Next Battle for the North Atlantic, Emerging Naval Competition with Russia in the Far North, to be published uh, later this year. So we're very excited to have uh, Magnus on the line today. His article is titled, Five Questions NATO Must Answer in the North Atlantic. So, uh, Magnus, thanks for making time to be on the show with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, quickly, give us the, the lead-in, if you would, to the five questions, and then we'll talk, talk about the questions. I think Ward and I have a sixth question to add to your list there. Uh, but sort of set the strategic, um, you know, battle space for us, if you would, with what's going on with Russia and NATO and the North Atlantic uh, that, that prompted you to think about these questions and write this article for us. Sure. So this all really begins with, with um, Russia taking a more assertive posture to, um, um, against, you know, both Europe and the United States and, and uh you know, starting in, in, uh, 2014, uh, in, in the war with Ukraine, you know, some, some would certainly argue that it really started in, you know, 2008 with, uh, with the war with, with Georgia. Um, 
Uh, but this is really sort of since, since then NATO has been been trying to to get back to a collective defense and deterrence posture after you know more than two decades of doing operations and counterinsurgency and and counterterrorism in places like Afghanistan, Bosnia, Kosovo, and um, and and Libya. Um, and in this context, uh, the North Atlantic is relevant again because obviously we we need to look at bringing reinforcements back to Europe. Um, the U.S. presence in Europe is far smaller than it used to be during the during the Cold War. Um, so NATO is slowly but surely waking up to the maritime domain um, and what what its role is in in defense and deterrence uh, against a uh, against an assertive Russia. Uh, and then we're not only talking the Baltic and the Black Sea; we're also talking the North the North Atlantic. Uh, and, and the point here is that um, that region looks very, very different uh, than it did during the 60s or 70s or, uh, or 80s um, when NATO last was very much focused on uh, maritime operations in and around the, the North Atlantic. Um, so that, that is broadly the, the context to, to, uh, to why I decided to write this, this, this article and highlight some of the things uh, that NATO needs to think about and, and, and needs to get right. Um, in order to uh, uh, to provide effective deterrence in uh, in the North Atlantic. So let's go over the five questions uh, one by one here. So number one is what is the nature of the challenge? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. So so again, I think there is a there is a very human uh, reaction, if you will, which is you know go go with your gut and let's, let's do what we did last time. Uh, and last time NATO was at this, we um, um, we primarily thought about it in terms of a barrier strategy uh, along the GIA UK gap. You know, so the the Greenland ice and UK um, you know gap that um, uh, that provides a choke point uh, uh, in the North Atlantic to to sort of to stop a, a Soviet advance into the North Atlantic. Yeah, North I've Africa. done I've done flight ups uh, out up there. That's pretty sporty. Pretty sporty. Right. Right, yeah. right, and then later in the eighties, you know, you had a new, you know, more more assertive uh, U.S. maritime strategy that was looking at operations uh, in the high north to sort of put pressure on the on the uh, on the Soviet northern northern fleet. Um, I'm, I'm arguing that's actually not what we're dealing with um, um, today. That certainly the uh, the Russian submarine force is certainly much better than it used to be, and it, it certainly operates a whole lot more than it than it did a decade ago. Um, but it is much smaller. Uh, and they seem to put a much more of an emphasis on, on the use of uh, cruise missiles, both anti-ship, but specifically uh, land attack cruise missiles. Um, uh, so I'm thinking that the, that the nature of the challenge is, is one where uh, Russia intends to actually stay pretty far north uh, and instead use cruise missiles to attack both command and control centers, uh, but then also the ports and airfields that we need to use to bring to bring reinforcements into um, into Europe, and that that puts a new spin uh, on the challenge, both for NATO and the United States, than than what we thought we were going to face during the during the Cold War. So that means that uh, instead of sending forces as far north as uh, Vestfjord off the coast of Norway, for example, you may even have to go further north. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Got it. So that's, you know, up under the ice or up under the newly melted ice in the summertime right. or the, uh, you know, north of north of Norway and north of, right. of uh, the Kola Peninsula. Right. Interesting. And if you, right. And if you look at it, if, if you if you look at the things that NATO has uh, NATO has done uh, um, um, so far, it is, you know, let's let's uh, um, let's get MPAs flying out of Keflavik. 
um, let's do ASW exercises around that area. And, and again, th- those are all good things, and, and I applaud NATO for, for doing it. Um, but really, it's only a, only a start, um, and, and we need to look a little further, if you in this case in particular, look a little further north for what, what NATO and the United States need to do in, in the North Atlantic. Yeah, so on the opening spread of your article on page 33, you mentioned Trident Juncture, uh, the big NATO exercise in the fall of 2018 that went uh, off the coast of Norway and forces were in Iceland and, and uh, in, um, uh, in Scandinavia as well, mm-hmm. 50-something thousand NATO forces, 250 aircraft, 65 ships, including the Harry Truman that we talked about earlier. Uh, and uh, in the March issue, uh, just before your article, starting on page uh, 26, 27, is uh, Lessons Learned from Trident Juncture. So we have a Marine Corps captain who wrote about uh, what he saw and, and experienced uh, in that exercise, which is a great, I think it goes really nicely with your uh, article. But um, and, and what comes out of reading your piece is that that's a great start, but it's a lot of sort of redoing what was already done in the Cold War. Uh, but maybe we need to think differently because the, the nature of the challenge and the threat has changed now, correct? Right, exactly. And I think, I mean, and this, this is really just a key point. I mean, I think historically, um, um, you, you can see a lot of examples that, you know, sort of getting the, the nature of the challenge right um, is really step number one, if, you know, to get your strategy right. Um, um, so, so that's why I think it's, it's actually worthwhile, um, or, or not only worthwhile, it's key, uh, both for, for NATO uh, but also the U.S. Navy. That um, if, if you want to get any um, um, any of this right, you do need to understand the the nature of the nature of the challenge before before you get started with step number two. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, was it Einstein who said if you got one hour to solve a problem, you should spend about fifty seven minutes uh, studying the nature of it to make sure you got it right, and then the last three minutes actually solving it. So uh, that's right. a, that's a good point. Your your second question of the five is who are the players? Right. Which, which again, I think is something that has changed since the last time we we saw the North Atlantic, for, uh, you know, through uh, through the security lens. That that certainly traditionally, you know, you know, pick your pick your battle: World War One, World War Two, Cold War. Um, uh, that obviously the the players have been the Atlantic nations, so the United States, Canada, UK, Norway, uh, um, and, and and obviously you know Russia coming you know coming out from from the Barents Sea. You know, th- those have been the traditional nations. And that's just a function of geography, right? You know, they all sort of live in that neighborhood. So they, you know, they tend to be the players. Um, um, but in this new era of, of, uh, um, uh, of, of uh, great power competition, we're seeing a new player, and that's China, uh, that is increasingly interested in the, in the North Atlantic, both militarily, but also commercially. Um, we've seen exam- uh, examples of the Chinese uh, um, uh, doing pretty serious investments in places like um, Iceland, um, uh, looking at, uh, looking at upgrading airports in Greenland, um, looking at, um, uh, extending its, uh, 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 research presence in, in Svalbard, um, uh, and, and so on. So, so there's this new player on the block that wasn't there before. Um, and just to share a, a personal story, I was in, um, I was in Germany around the, uh, around the end of Baltops, which is the big U.S.-led, uh, uh, exercise in the Baltic every, every summer. And I was in, I was in Kiel, uh, looking over the pier. And there was the USS Bainbridge, um, along with other, with other, um, uh, um, allied warships that were, that were just in from, from finishing up Baltops. Um, and in the middle of this was a brand new Chinese frigate, 
uh, that also decided to visit Kiel um, uh, when when NATO had its uh, uh, when NATO had its had its wrapping up of of, of bolt ops. Um, so the Chinese Navy is is also increasingly um, in the broader na- uh, neighborhood. Um, my point here is not that we need to plan to fight China in the North Atlantic. Um, but we should recognize that there's another great power that is increasingly interested in this um, in this maritime space, where for the last three decades um, we could assume that it was only going to be us, uh, and that's no that's no longer the case. Number three, who is on our team? So again, um, we we we've made some assumptions as who who is on our team, and, and during Cold War days we had a uh, we had a pretty um, uh, we had a pretty solid division of labor. The the Brits had their role, we had our role, the Norwegians had their role, the Danes and and uh, and and others, uh, and we even had a command structure to um, to go um, to go with it. Um, today, so far, I'm only seeing a smaller team engaging. So so again, us, um, uh, the Norwegians, the UK, of course. Um, but there are others that we should try to engage on this. So, you know, the Danes have one foot in the Baltic, one foot in the Atlantic. Uh, and again, they, they still own the, the great real estate that is Greenland. Um, the Canadians um, certainly have a role to play in, in, in all of this um, as well. Um, and even the French. Um, so I think we need to take a um, uh, we need to take a broader view on who can contribute to, to defense and deterrence in the in the Atlantic. Now, you, you mentioned the Canadians. uh sort of as a secondary player now. So to what extent do you sense that the Canadians are looking to expand their Navy, modernize it, and, and get into the game? Right. So there's, uh, there certainly seems to be movement afoot. Um, obviously, they, they, have a, they have a shipbuilding program um, uh, um, underway for, for new classes of, uh, of warships. Uh, there also seems to be some interest in, in recapitalizing their, their uh, maritime patrol aircraft. So there does seem to be some, uh, there does seem to be some movement there. Um, I would say primarily um, in their sort of re-engagement on European security, um, they obviously went to Latvia with ground forces um, uh, when NATO stood up its new uh, enhanced forward presence in the Baltic states, where you know where the United States is you know leads in Poland and Germany leads in Lithuania, uh, with the Brits in, in Estonia and then and then Canada leading in in Latvia. Um, that's a great thing. I, I applaud the Canadians for for coming from 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 afar, if you will, and taking up that leadership position. Um, but based on geography, um, I think it makes a lot of sense for for the Canadians to also pick up a role in the uh, in the North Atlantic. Gotcha. Agreed. Uh, question four is: What technologies are needed? Right. So, so again, I think you would see the the initial response has been has been sort of recapitalization of of, of current technology. So the the Brits are the Brits and the Norwegians are uh, are getting P8s. Uh, the Norwegians are looking at a new, or it's actually signed a contract for a new submarine class to replace their uh, their their older boats. Um, um, and, and there's also there's also a, a number of ASW frigates coming online, which, which again, those are all good things uh, uh, and and needed. Um, but I think we also need to look a little further afield. Uh, uh, there's, you know, increasingly, you know, evidence that points to that ASW is changing. Uh, you know, coupled with that, you know, frankly, Russian submarines are quieter than they used to be um, during the Cold War. So, um, so, so we obviously need to look at big data, distributed sensors, uh, unmanned systems, and 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 so on. Um, and here again, I think NATO actually has an opportunity to um, uh, to lead um, on on new ASW technologies for for the North Atlantic. Um, a lot of the NATO countries have you know great defense industry, a technology base. 
um, and actually some experience, you know, doing things together in, in sort of a consortium-like um, uh, way to, de- to develop new ASW solutions. Well, that's a nice segue into question five, which is what does hybrid warfare look like in the North Atlantic? Right. So, so again, so at, at this point, we're, we're all pretty familiar with, 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 uh, with Russian hybrid, um, hybrid approaches to, to, to conflict in places like Georgia and, and Ukraine. And I would say even in, even in this country with, with election interference, uh, and, and, and so on. And, and actually you, you can, if, if you, uh, if you take a look at the North Atlantic, you, you can sort of, you can see the opportunities out there. Um, there's lots of submarine cables that, that carry both military and civilian traffic uh, across the uh, across the Atlantic, and, and it's um, I think we in our imagination we when we when we think about global communications we we tend to sort of be drawn to satellites, but something like 95% of global uh, global communications are actually undersea uh, and and not uh, not through space. Um, and then of course in the in the far North Atlantic you've had this um, explosion. Uh, uh, in energy extraction since, since the end of the Cold War with, with oil and gas exploration and, and, and so on. Uh, and they, they obviously offer, um, uh, uh, opportunities for, for hybrid, me- uh, measures, um, you know, coming from an adversary. Um, the one caveat that I would give to this, um, it's important. We need to think about it. We need to have measures in place. Um, but it should not be, it should not be thought of in place of sort of conventional military power. I, I sometimes think um, um, that, that, uh, that hybrid conversations sort of slip into being an attempt to sort of deflect from um, serious conversations about defense investments and, 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 and so on. But, but it's, it's there and needs to be thought about. Some of our listeners may be interested in a, a point you make on page 35 uh, under this question. You say Russia has already taken an interest in transatlantic submarine cables and is investing in a special purpose submarine force capable of conducting technical work on the seabed. Can you expand on that just a little bit? So there's only so much to there's only so much to be had in 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 uh, in, in open sources. Um, um, uh, the Russians the Russians are a secret bunch to begin with, um, um, and uh, but there's obviously a, a decent amount of decent amount of stuff that you can dig up on their uh, on the development of their uh, uh, of their let's call it the regular submarine force. Um, uh, but there's bits and ends out there in in, in credible sources. Uh, in, in what they're doing in terms of their, uh, in, in terms of their, their special purpose submarines, uh, both smaller ones for, for, for use on, on cables and, and working on infrastructure on the, on the seabed, but also some of their, some of their delivery vehicles, uh, uh, delivery vehicles as, uh, um, um, as well. Uh, but again, it's, it's, um, it, it's there, um, and, and you can get some in open sources, but, but, but again, the, the Russians are, are rather secretive about it. So we could assume these submarines would tap into cables to listen, or maybe cut them to cut to, them or sabotage yeah, them. sabotage them. In yeah, some no, way. So, so so both, right? Um, so obviously, as an intelligence gathering thing, it's it's uh, uh, it's a tra- uh, treasure uh, trove, um, obviously, but but also to to cut to disrupt them. I would add though to um, in over say the last year or so, I think there's been some panicky news coverage out there uh, that all the all the connections can be severed and and so on. And I don't think that's true um, um, because there there is there is plenty of cable out there, um, uh, but it would certainly constrict, it would disrupt, um, it would uh, it would take away bandwidth, 
Um, so it would certainly not be a, a, a good thing for, for NATO and, and the United States and, and its European allies. But I would, um, I would probably dial it down a little bit and, and, and some of this sort of regular or, or sort of general news coverage, I, I would actually label as a bit, uh, as a bit panicky uh, on this over the last 18 months or so. Yeah, but it's an important point, particularly on the economic impact or the potential economic impact, right? So as you just said, it would certainly constrain bandwidth. So if there's a hundred cables that cross the Atlantic and you cut a couple of them, you know, you can start to impact bandwidth. And as we saw in the news yesterday, Facebook and Instagram were down uh, Mm -hmm. for about 24 hours. And in, and in 24 hours, there were, I heard uh, a number of different estimates. Uh, from credible uh, business news sites that said the impact on Facebook was in the billions of dollars of ad revenues in 24 hours. That is yeah, Im- that is impressive, right? Uh, so yeah, so you cut a few cables uh, or threaten them, and you can really start to impact transatlantic, uh, you know, business and economic uh, connections uh, in a credible way, um, significant way very quickly so that's 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 a it's a key point right so well the uh the other thing about that kind of capability is it's not necessarily new right i'm thinking of blind man's bluff the book by sherry sontag sure um that goes over that cold war era uh uh you know captain donovan and all those guys doing that work um and if you haven't read that i recommend uh that the listeners uh check that one out it's still relevant and it's an amazing book about uh, the Cold War submarine uh, back and forth. It's sure, if, an if, amazing capability. If that was so, happening yeah. in the in the 70s and 80s, you got to uh, right. postulate that it the, continues today. Yep, right? Yep. Right. That's my. That's yep, kind yep. of my point. Yeah. Well, they said, no, absolutely, and I, I would I would footstomp it. That's that's a great book, but you know you you can even trace it further back. I mean, actually, one of the one of the first measures at the outbreak of World War One. Uh, that, uh, that the Brits undertook was to cut German submarine cables uh, mm. and, and to cut their their global communications to their to their colonies and and to uh, to their naval forces sort of further further afield. So yeah. there um, uh, there were also measures taken during World War uh, World War One and World War Two uh, in terms of trying to constrain. Uh, in this case, it was the Allies trying to constrain uh, Germany's ability to communicate with its uh, with its forces and uh, 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 and diplomatic missions around the world. Wow, that's pretty cool. So basically, yeah. as old as submarines themselves. <laughs> that's right. You know yeah. this this, yeah, no, this and, 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 mission. And it, yeah, no, and it's actually in in the in the World War One case, I think they actually sort of they they asked the British Postal Service to sort of go out there in a tugboat and and haul you know haul it aboard and you know sort of cut it off and throw it back in you know throw it back <laughs> in the sea. So wow. Nothing, but that worked too. Wow. Uh, so they 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 did it pretty un, you know unceremoniously. <laughs> So uh, we've gotten through the five questions that are in your article, and Ward and I were both talking about this beforehand. Uh, we think a sixth one uh, that we'd like you to expound on a little bit is who's going to pay for it, right? So much has been in the news, and our president has made a lot of comments about whether our NATO partners are paying enough and paying their way. Uh, there's been pressure to get NATO partners to up their uh, share of defense spending to 3% percent of GDP, and you're a NATO expert. So tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about uh, the status of which you know NATO partners have been increasing and to what extent they're increasing and, and how far are they from getting to a 3 to 3% share of GDP for defense spending? Yeah, so, um, um, so, so great question, and it's, and it's central. Um, so, um, you know, broadly speaking, at this point, I think, you know, the, um, you know, NATO has moved, or, you know, the, you know, NATO members have moved from you know, five countries, um, uh, five countries, you know, hitting 2% today 
So I think the latest one I saw is eight or nine hitting, uh, uh, hitting 2% and then another ooh, 10 or so, you know, are said to sort of have credible plans to get there by, by 2024. Um, so I think, I mean, that, that's actually that, uh, and that deserves to be called out. Um, um, that the, that the agreement is not to sort of get there next year, uh, or get there immediately. The agreement is to get there by 2024. Um, but, but certainly one, one should not look away from the fact that there are some laggards. Uh, that do not seem to be to be getting there. You know, Germany is uh, uh, is a is a case in case in point. Um, but in the North Atlantic case, um, things are looking pretty good. So the UK is already there. Uh, uh, Norway uh, uh, Norway has an investment plan underway um, and is doing a lot of procurement. Uh, we already mentioned the, the maritime patrol aircraft, uh, the submarines, um, fighter aircraft, and and uh, and and other things. Uh, uh, and Canada is also looking at a uh, at an increase. Or already mentioned their their uh, their uh, long term shipbuilding program. So there are some resources that are being that are being applied. And, and my point here um, is that this is actually doable in in the sense that um, the the Russian challenge is not unovercomable. Uh, and, and like I said, uh, to to me, um, the challenge is not this sort of um, uh, they're bigger than ever, they're meaner than ever. Uh, to me, it actually uh, the Russians get a lot done with the limited resources they have, um, um, but that also means that this is actually a challenge that we can do something about by by also being clever uh, and and by marshalling our resources in a way that we're, we're sort of where the uh, the sum is more more than just its um, more than just its parts. Um, and actually, I do think also that you know we need to let the Europeans take more of a leadership role. Um, I'm, I'm sure. On your podcast, you know, on a number of times you talked about the the, um, um, the demand signal for naval forces from the Pacific. Um, so unlike the Cold War, the U.S. Navy cannot only uh, focus on the North Atlantic. There, there, there's other trouble to go around in the world that the U.S. Navy needs to needs to to think about. Um, so the U.S. Navy certainly has a role to play in the North Atlantic, and and it's especially on the on the high end side. Um, um, but yes, this this is some this is something that that our European allies need to pick up on as well. So what what's the attitude of uh, our our NATO partners to the Trump administration's pressure? Because you mentioned it sounds like uh, everybody's kind of trying to do their part, and and uh, they they feel like this is a fair request. Is is that right, or is there some resentment? What, what what's so what's I, the dynamic there? Well, so I think there's um, again there's 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 several layers to this, right? Um, and actually, you know, Donald Trump is not the first one to ask the Europeans to to spend more. In the, I mean, I think it actually even goes back to John F. Kennedy. I think is the first U.S. president to call on Europeans to spend more on defense, and and Obama did the same thing, and Bush did the same thing, and and so on. So, so in that sense, it's not necessarily new. Um, I would say that the Europeans. Privately, they 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 see it. It is a it is a much more turbulent it is, it is a more turbulent world, and it's a more competitive, secure landscape out there. And, and the Europeans see it too. Um, the problem is that they, they run into some of their own domestic politics. Um, uh, that the Trump administration, um, um, it's not perhaps so much about the message as it is about sort of how the message is put. <laughs> um, uh, that that makes it difficult for them to sort of face their own voters because they don't want to appear to be uh, to be a poodle, if you will, uh, in in front of in front of President President Trump. Um, but 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 certainly the the national security types, if you will, uh, uh, they get it. Uh, but then they also have to deal with their own domestic politics around that. 
Gotcha. Hey, uh, Magnus, our, our listeners will note your European accent. So yep. I know, I know you're calling us from Northern Virginia today. You're, uh, yep. tell us a little bit about your background. Well, where let, you're from. let me guess. Are you Dutch? No. So I, so I, well, first I'm a proud American immigrant. I immigrated no, I get, here about I get 20 it. years ago. Yeah. Uh, uh, but or, or, uh, originally, uh, originally from Sweden, actually. Oh, from Sweden. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I immigrated over here in 1998. Because you kind of sound like a guy in a Heineken beer commercial. <laughs> That's why I get stuck. <laughs> Very nice. Um, I wanted to just highlight a couple of things. We sort of talked about the Russian threat and the capabilities and that sort of thing. Um, so one of the things you mentioned was their high-end new classes of submarines. Uh, so we've had some uh, reporting in proceedings uh, over the last year or two about the Yasin class or the Severed Vinsk. Uh, Michael Kaufman from uh, CNA has written a, a series with uh, also Norman Polmar about mm-hmm. the advances of the Russian Navy and, and sort of broke it down from, I think it was late 2017 into 2018, uh, surface forces, submarine forces, air forces, et cetera. It was really a terrific series by those two experts. Um, yep. And we've got another piece coming up in uh, next month's issue uh, by Norman Polmar on the Status 6 so can you uh, just tease out a little bit of that for us? So no, I mean, again, I think um, I've, I've read those pieces, and I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of both of theirs. So they, 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 are, they are great experts. I, I don't think, you know, I would, I would disagree with, with any of it. So, so, again, I think the point is there that, you know, a submarine class like the Seven of Vince, you know, everything that we've seen in, in public seems that they are, they are approaching uh, U.S. capabilities in terms of quieting and so on and so forth. Um, but it is a much smaller force, right? You know, they're only getting so many of them, right? Um, and that's um, um, that's why I think they they would not waste a capability like that, or you know, one of those sort of you know, for lack of better term, sort of you know, high value, low density kind of asset um, on an anti shipping campaign um, um, out in the um, out in the Atlantic. Um, I think they will stay much closer to home. Um, and instead, you know, because of their extended range of, of their new caliber cruise missiles, which which um, which will all be able to be fired from the Severobinsk and and, and and even the even the kilo class, uh, the improved kilo class, um, it is a much um, more sort of resource informed use um, to use those platforms as as um, cruise missile shooters uh, rather than try to um, to escape out in the broader Atlantic with something that that is still relatively sort of low density in terms of numbers. Yeah, it's a terrific point. Got it. How how about uh, the situation with our um, uh, with our Baltic NATO partners? The new the new mm-hmm. uh, relatively still new NATO members: uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Uh, they've obviously been very concerned watching what the the Russians did both in Georgia uh, and then more recently in the Ukraine. And you mentioned earlier the Canadian deployment uh, over to Latvia. Uh, so what what's kind of going on in, in, in as you follow you know politics and also um, you know uh, political military affairs in the Baltic? Uh, what's happening in the in the thinking of those leaders and military leaders, particularly in the Baltic nations? Yeah, no. So again, so first of all, th- those are countries that have actually you know very quickly rushed towards two percent of GDP for defending. You know, Estonia has been there for a while, and, and Latvia and Lithuania are, are rapidly rapidly getting there. Um, um, so they are, um, um, they are obviously quite pleased that there now is an enhanced forward presence by NATO in their countries. Um, again, like I said, led by, you know, UK, Canada, Germany, and, and the US, uh, respectively. Um, uh, but again, just like the North Atlantic, uh, that's a good first step, um, uh, and an important first step to, to, uh, to get a, 
uh, to get a deterrence capability in there. Um, but now comes the sort of the hard part. So how do we reinforce? Um, how do we make this stick? How do we make this sustainable over the, um, over the long term? How do we get air defense in there? Um, uh, to go along with the, with the ground forces. So, so, so again, there's, there's a good start. Um, uh, there's a good start. Um, um, but more needs to be done. Um, and I think especially those countries, um, uh, are really looking for ways to get more U.S. engagement. There, there, there certainly is U.S. forces rotating through there too. Uh, but they, but they are keen, um, to get, to get more U.S. engagement, whether that is, you know, ground based, air based or, 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 uh, or sea based. Well, I think Secretary Pompeo actually said something that was a little bit shocking to the NATO construct vis-a-vis those Baltic states, um, which is, hey, why would we go to war if somebody attacks, I don't know if it was Latvia or whatever. It's like, well, because that's sort of the NATO construct, right? Article I mean, it was, five, yeah. Right? yeah. Um, so I know that was sort of, yeah, it's the whole point of NATO, right? right? And so I know it's something he just said extemporaneously um, that kind of had these shock waves about, wow. well, hold it, time out here, yeah. what, what's going on? So. Yeah. Um, I think everybody, the, the assurances were made back channel, but, uh, I, I think, you know, to the point of the way it's delivered can be a little bit, uh, uh, a shock to the system. I think that's different than any previous administration. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, Magnus, uh, thanks for your time today. We're, we're out of time, uh, but wanted to just, uh, do a, a real quick recap. So we've been talking to Magnus Nordenman. His article in the March issue of Proceedings is called Five Questions NATO Must Answer in the North Atlantic. It starts on page 32 uh, of the March issue, which is our International Navy's Focus. And I'd, I'd point out to our readers and listeners uh, that just prior to Magnus's article in the magazine is this great article on uh, Lessons Learned from Trident Juncture 2018. Uh, and then just after your article is the section, the long section, uh, that we do in, in the March issue every year called the Commanders Respond, where we pose some questions to international chiefs of navies. Uh, and we got a, a record number this year, 26 uh, foreign chiefs of navy responding. And many of the countries, the, the, the CNOs, if you will, uh, of the countries we've been talking about with you today, Magnus, are in that uh, that section. So we've got, you know, for example, Canada, Belgium, uh, we've got the UK, we've got Finland, Germany, Greece, uh, we've got uh, the Turkish navies in here as well, online only, but a lot of those countries are represented in this section. So uh, if you read Magnus's piece and then you want to branch out a little bit, learn more about Trident Juncture and also learn about how those nations are thinking about the far north, uh, it's, a, it's a great read. So uh, Magnus, thanks again for joining us. Uh, appreciate it. And we look forward to uh, your coming book. That's going to be called, uh, again, The Next Battle for the Atlantic, The Emerging Naval Competition with Russia in the Far North, to be published by the Naval Institute Press uh, later in 2020 or 2019. So uh, thanks again for your time. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Okay, folks. Uh, so next week, we're going to be having a podcast on Wednesday, and our guest is... Is uh, Garth Innes, who is the writer of the new graphic novel from our Naval Institute Press subsidiary imprint, uh, Dead Reckoning, called Night Witches. It's, I'm reading it right now. It's a fantastic book about some uh, Russian pilots in World War II, female Russian pilots. Uh, so he'll be calling in. He's very well known in the, uh, the graphic novel and uh, military gamer space. Um, so it'll be sort of an unusual guest for us, but uh, yeah. we're very excited to, yeah, so- to highlight a Dead Reckoning title. 
um, and then to talk to one of the rock stars from that space, Garth Ennis. All right, looking forward to it. Thanks again for joining us this week. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.